Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. William Mansfield Sr. and his wife Virginia would have six sons together. Two of those sons, Billy Jr. and Gary, would follow in their father's footsteps and become evil, abusive rapists and murderous cowards, and the justice system was useless and would continue to give Mansfield Sr., Billy Jr., and Gary get-out-of-jail-free cards to repeat their crimes. Mansfield Sr. has a rap sheet that dates back to 1946 and spread across multiple states. Billy Jr. was the eldest son and Gary the youngest. Billy Jr. quit school when he was 14 and forged his birth certificate so that he could join the Army. But he was quickly discharged when he showed severe alcohol and drug problems. Billy Jr.'s first of many arrests was at the age of 18 when he was charged with kidnapping two women and forcing them to perform immoral acts on him. However, the jury did not believe that both young women could have been forced to do this by just one man and was acquitted just like his father had been at least once. Three years later, he was again arrested on criminal sexual conduct charges involving a 16-year-old girl. He pled guilty and was given only six months in jail. A year later, he was arrested again when two teenage girls told police that he raped them at knife point. His parole was revoked, and he was sent to jail to face a life sentence, but was given another get-out-of-jail-free card in exchange for his testimony against his murderous cellmate's confessions. Billy Jr. had his sentence reduced to time served and only spent one year in jail. He was released in February 1980 to restart his crime spree. Just like his father and brother, Gary was in and out of prison starting in the mid-1970s. Following a stint in 1977 for sexual misconduct, he was released after only a few months after testifying against his cellmate. While out on parole, he quickly assaulted two teenagers and was sent back to jail. During his miserable life, he has had many convictions for battery, kidnapping, and sexual assault. In June of 1980, 18-year-old Pam Sherrill reported to police that Billy Jr. had forced her into his van, drove her to his trailer, and beat her. As he attempted to sexually assault her, she grabbed a knife and was able to escape by threatening him with it. When police attempted to arrest him, he couldn't be found. Two months later, he and Gary fled to California and were arrested five months later. Despite his long record, 
he was able to post bail, and the next month he began working at a mushroom farm in Santa Cruz, California, where he and Gary lived together. Meanwhile, their father was also once again in jail and was being charged with 40 counts of sexually abusing young girls and only pled guilty to four of those 40 counts. On December 6, 1980, Billy Jr. met a married 29-year-old mother of three, Renee Sailing, at a bar called the Wooden Nickel. The two left together, and the next day, her body was found in a drainage ditch in Watsonville, California. She had been sexually assaulted and murdered. Days later, he and Gary were arrested, Billy Jr. for first-degree murder and Gary for accessory after the fact. During his trial for Renee's murder, the judge ordered a mistrial, and then Billy Jr. escaped and would be on the run for 12 hours. Ultimately, he went on trial again and was found guilty for the rape and murder of Renee. Gary turned state's witness and was relieved of the charge for committing accessory after the fact. Due to the case's publicity, an anonymous tipster told investigators to search the Manfield's property in Florida for Sandra Graham, a 21-year-old missing woman. Sandra had been an employee at a community college and was last seen leaving a bar on April 27, 1980. She had left all her personal belongings behind and vanished into thin air. What they would find on the Mansfield's property would shock everyone. Between March and April 1981, officials unearthed four sets of skeletal remains from the Mansfield's six-acre junkyard. The junkyard was located in the Spring Hill area of Florida, formerly known as the Wikiwachi Acres neighborhood. The first set of remains belonged to a white woman in her 20s who, as of mid-2022, has yet to be identified. Also found were 21-year-old Sandra Graham, 15-year-old Elaine Ziegler, and an unidentified fourth victim. Elaine was a tourist from Ohio that had disappeared from her family's campsite on New Year's Eve of 1975. According to court records, Mansfield Sr. and both his sorry-ass sons sexually assaulted each victim, but Billy Jr. was the one that murdered and desecrated their bodies, and later sickly stated that he wanted them close by. He never told police who the unidentified victims were, but he was convicted of not only Renee's murder, but later admitted to all four of the females found murdered on their property in Florida. He received four additional life sentences to the already 25 years he was sentenced for Renee's murder and the sexual battery of a fifth victim that occurred when he escaped from prison during the mistrial. Mansfield Sr. was convicted in 1980 for sexually abusing 40 young children, including the repeated assault of a girl beginning at the age of nine months old. He was released after only serving 10 years of his 30-year sentence for good behavior. Decades later, Hernando County officials decided to turn the newer use of forensic genetic genealogy to identify the two remaining teen victims. In 2020, a complete DNA profile of each victim was created. However, entries into the databases yielded no results, so they sent their profiles to Parabon Nano Labs, who were able to create snapshots of the victims. The snapshots showed what the girls would have likely looked like using predictions for their ancestry, eye color, hair color, 
skin color, freckling, and face shape. Also in 2020, a drug bust occurred at Gary's home near the property where his brother buried his victims. While being handcuffed, he began yelling and demanding immunity, claiming more bodies were all over the property. This would lead to the discovery of more sets of human remains, but so far, details of those remains have been safeguarded by authorities. Despite being convicted of dozens of sexual assaults against children, Mansfield Sr. was a free man in 2020 and was living at his other son's property. Then in 2021, genetic genealogy and extensive investigations led to one of the Jane Doe's identification. On July 20, 2022, 42 years later, officials announced they'd finally identified one of the Jane Doe's as 16-year-old Teresa Caroline Filigam of Tampa, Florida. Teresa had been reported missing by her sister Margaret Jones on May 16, 1980, just a week before her 17th birthday. She was heading to a job interview when she was tragically abducted and murdered. Cold case detective George Lloydgren said he believed Teresa was abducted and murdered that same day. Her sister said Teresa was a typical rebellious teen when she came to live with her in 1980. Teresa's parents and one of her sisters were no longer alive to witness the identification. But her remaining sister, Margaret Johns, and her brother were there to see it. Margaret stated that she now has peace after finally knowing what happened to her sister all those years ago. But she said knowing that her killer is up for parole in 2022 maddens her and she will testify to keep him behind bars for the rest of his miserable life. Catherine Sybil Worski was born on April 9, 1970, and grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, with parents Robin and Alan Worski. She was nicknamed Katie and lived in an apartment in the Four Seasons subdivision off Rio Road with her parents, older sister Jamie, and younger brother John. She was described as a tomboy who loved playing sports and enjoyed going fishing with her father on the Chesapeake Bay. At the age of five, she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and had to learn to give herself insulin injections every day for the rest of her life. On July 12, 1982, 12-year-old Katie asked her parents for permission to spend the night with her close friend, 13-year-old Tammy Gates, at 2745 McElroy Drive in Charlottesville, Virginia. Although they went to different schools, they often had sleepovers at each other's homes. At first, her parents said no, but Katie was persistent, and her parents reluctantly gave in. Her father, Alan, dropped her off, not knowing it would be the last time he would see his little girl. Tammy's mother's ex-boyfriend, Glenn Haslam Barker, came into the house late that night and gave the girl some beer and then allegedly left. At about 5.30 a.m., Tammy woke up and noticed that Katie was gone. Tammy's mother, Carrie Gates, quickly called Katie's parents early that morning, hoping that Katie had somehow returned home, but she hadn't. Panicked, Katie's parents went to Tammy's home to search for their daughter, hoping she was playing a horrible game of hide-and-seek and thinking surely their daughter wasn't actually missing. When they couldn't find her, they notified the police of her disappearance. Before police could even arrive, 23-year-old Barker returned to the house to help in the search. He had previously dated Carrie, 
but their relationship ended before Katie went missing, and she allegedly didn't know that Barker had entered her home earlier in the night after she went to bed. Barker not only had a criminal record, but he had pleaded guilty in North Carolina to assault in 1981 after confessing to kidnapping a teenage girl and holding her at knife point. He claimed it was because he had begun drinking and using drugs after his wife left him. Barker knew the 18-year-old girl for a year through her boyfriend and followed her after she left church one evening. He motioned for her to stop, and when she did, he asked if they could talk. She agreed, let him in her car, and drove 20 minutes to drop him off. He then turned on her, put a knife to her neck, and forced her inside where he tied her up. While he went out to move her car, she wiggled free of the restraints and escaped through a window, escaping death by only seconds. She later refused to testify, and he received a two-year suspended sentence. Police interrogated him soon after Katie's disappearance, and he admitted having seen her the night before she went missing. He stated he had come by the house after everyone had gone to bed and had given Katie and Tammy one can of beer each. However, Tammy claims that she and Katie drank more than one beer and both got sick and then went to bed. Barker says he had come over to visit with Carrie, but she told him she was too tired to drink the beer he'd brought and went to bed. Barker was supposed to have left, but claimed the kids then asked him to stay to hang out and drink the beer. He said he was young too and knew it was wrong to give them beer, but didn't want to be the bad guy. He said he held Tammy's hair while she threw up in the toilet from the beer, but never noticed that Katie was sick. Barker stated he left after midnight after ensuring the children were safe, but the truth was he kidnapped and murdered Katie after getting her intoxicated. Investigators did not believe Barker's story and searched his apartment in the Hessian Hills apartment complex on Georgetown Road with his permission. They found wet, blood-stained men's clothing and towels wedged between his mattress and box spring and inside a cooler. Barker appeared shocked and stated he had no idea how the bloody items were stashed under the mattress. Authorities searched his apartment again a few days later and discovered a pair of girls' panties hidden in a rolled-up ball of socks in his dresser. There was a tiny blood stain on the back of the panties consistent with the location where Katie injected her insulin for her diabetes. 1982 was a time before DNA could be tested to match someone, and blood type tests were the primary way to narrow down a suspect. Some of the blood was type A, Barker's blood type, and some was type B. However, Katie's blood was not documented in any records. Six months later, in January of 1983, her parents had an idea. Before Katie went missing, she had started her menstrual cycle and there happened to be several small blood stains on her mattress. The only other person that had recently slept in her bed was her menopausal grandmother. Authorities tested the mattress for blood, and several of the stains were blood which turned out to be type B. Barker was then arrested and charged with Katie's murder in January 1983, six months after she went missing. Prosecutors theorized that after Katie became intoxicated, Barker carried her to the living room, attempted to molest her, then killed her. A few drops of Katie's blood type were found on the living room rug and coffee table, showing that something violent occurred there. 
During the trial, Tammy testified that after getting sick from the beer and going to bed, she last saw Barker reading her eight-year-old brother Eddie a bedtime story, and the next thing she remembered was waking up from a bad dream to find Katie missing. Forensic experts testified that a hair found in Barker's car was consistent with Katie's hair, and police dogs identified her scent in it as well. The jury convicted Barker of second-degree murder and recommended a sentence of 18 years in prison. He was acquitted of first-degree murder because it wasn't believed to be premeditated. Shockingly, he only served nine years, half of his prison sentence. This lit a fire under a local man in the area named George Allen. He ran for governor, intending to try to eliminate parole and was successful. He eventually was able to eliminate mandatory parole along with several other laws regarding violent offenders and the requirement for juries to be told precisely how much time someone they convict will serve. Robin Worski visited Barker twice in prison and begged him to reveal the location of her daughter's body, but he refused. After being paroled from prison in 1992, he was arrested the following year during a traffic stop. A sawed-off pellet gun and handcuffs were discovered in his car, which felons are not supposed to possess. He served six months in jail before being re-released. Barker then became the suspect in several more murders. His previous therapist noted that he likely had anger directed at females. There were several coincidences regarding people being harmed after a woman in his life cut ties with him. He kidnapped his friend's girlfriend soon after his wife left him. Then, he kidnapped and murdered Katie after her friend's mother, Carrie, broke up with him. He likely murdered Cynthia Johnson and her daughter, Heather Johnson, in Richmond, Virginia, after Cynthia broke up with him. Cynthia Powers Johnson met Barker soon after his release from prison, and the two began dating, despite Cynthia being aware of his past. But things would turn sour, and Cynthia would break things off. She started dating a new man and was still in the process of trying to get Barker out of her life when she went on vacation to Florida with this man and her daughter. When they returned, Barker wasn't happy. That's when Cynthia and her seven-year-old daughter, Heather Johnson, were murdered in their home and the home set on fire. A neighbor believed he had seen Barker's pickup truck at their home as it was notable for a red skin sticker on the back. But the neighbor would not testify, and Barker moved to New Jersey soon after their deaths. There was also insufficient evidence to prove he was their killer. Barker is also a person of interest in the murder of Albemarle High School graduate Paula Jean Chandler, whose body was recovered from the Ravana Reservoir not long before Katie went missing. Some theorize Barker was a serial killer, but he was never charged with any deaths besides Katie's, and he claimed for years that he was a scapegoat and was framed by police. He died of natural causes in North Carolina in 2014 while living in the golfing resort town of Pinehurst. When Albemarle County Sheriff Chip Harding learned that Glenn Barker was dead, he said he slept well for the first time in decades. He said Barker had threatened him and his family during the investigation and even in the courtroom while on trial for Katie's murder. Although Katie's body has never been found, there have been many rumors about where she may be buried. The most significant and longest-running rumor 
was that she was likely buried in the foundation of the Hardy's restaurant in Pantops, a suburban area on the eastern edge of Charlottesville. The foundation was poured the day after Katie disappeared, and Barker had worked at a gas station in Pantops. He was also allegedly part of the crew that poured the concrete that day. Katie's younger brother, John Worski, said his family received an anonymous letter making that claim, and they submitted it for forensic testing to determine the sender. He was told that police sent it to Richmond, Virginia to be analyzed, but never returned any results as far as he knows. When Hardy's closed in 2020, the community wanted a search performed during any future renovations or demolition of the building, hoping to put the rumors to rest. Police reportedly say they've never found any evidence supporting excavation of the site. In addition, the restaurant owner stated there were no plans for excavation or remodeling at the time of its closing. Hopefully, she will one day be discovered so that she can finally be laid to rest. Laura Ann Weiser was born May 10, 1972, to parents Jose and Judy Weiser and was one of five children. At the age of 11, she lived in St. Lucie County, Florida, and was a sixth grader at Chester A. Moore Elementary School. On November 5, 1983, Laura stayed overnight with a friend in her hometown of Fort Pierce, Florida. The next day, during her walk home, she stopped by a local gas station named 2G's Market. A patrol deputy named James Howard Harrison spotted Laura walking near the gas station carrying an armful of clothes. He would be the last person to see her alive mere feet from her driveway. Laura would never make it home. Her father then reported her missing, but unfortunately at the time, authorities did not take reports of missing adolescents seriously until they had been missing for extended periods. Then the assumption was that they were either runaways or lost track of time while off playing with friends. If only that were the case in Laura's absence. Three days later, her body was found by two citizens located only about 600 yards from the convenience store she was last seen at. Laura was found south of Midway Road, at the back of a citrus grove, less than half a mile from where she was last seen. This location is near where the St. Lucie County Fairgrounds are now. She had been sexually assaulted, and her cause of death was asphyxiation. When the two witnesses notified authorities, Officer Harrison was quickly on the scene. Strangely, he ordered the two witnesses to leave the scene, and this was about 20 minutes before any other officers arrived. Harrison noted in his report that he had seen the girl before her murder walking away from the gas station and said she appeared to be carrying a bundle of clothes. DNA testing was unavailable at the time, and there was no hard evidence to point directly to a suspect. However, suspicion quickly fell on Officer Harrison because he was the last person to see her alive and the first officer on the scene. He also had an extensive history of inappropriate behavior towards young girls. Even with their suspicion of Harrison, the case would still go cold for nearly 40 years. In 2020, St. Lucie County Sheriff's Detective Paul Taylor, the agency's cold case detective, began working on the case. He would spend the next two years tediously reviewing all the reports, witness accounts, and the background of the sketchy sheriff deputy. 
he quickly located the two witnesses that discovered Laura's body. He learned they were never interviewed again after Harrison strangely shooed them away from the crime scene. The witnesses described a very graphic and vivid scene and never forgot the details. Turns out, their memory of where they found the body was different than what was in the original crime scene photos. The photos showed that the body's location and position had changed within that 20-minute window between the witnesses leaving and Harrison summoning the other deputies to the crime scene. As Harrison was alone at the scene, he was the only one with an opportunity to have repositioned the body before the other deputies arrived. St. Lucie investigators looked into Harrison's background and learned that his long-standing career involved numerous misconduct accusations. The current St. Lucie Sheriff, Ken J. Mascara, claimed he'd worked with Harrison decades ago and had even filed a complaint with his supervisors about Harrison and his alleged inappropriate relationship with young girls around 1979 or 1980. Mascara said Harrison's behavior with children and teenagers was not sexual, but he felt it was inappropriate. Supervisors advised him that Harrison was a preacher who spiritually mentored at-risk children and teenagers. However, as Officer Taylor dug deeper into the evidence from decades earlier, he realized the depth of Harrison's troubled past and disturbing reputation for targeting young girls. He believes Harrison was likely using his authority as a deputy sheriff and being a so-called preacher at Fort Pierce's Bethel Baptist Church to violate children. Approximately five months after Laura was abducted and killed, Harrison was accused of sexual abuse by church members. Harrison realized the accusations could cost him his job at the sheriff's office. In an attempt to spare his career, he went directly to the home of the chief deputy to explain the situation. Although he brought his wife along and denied the allegations, the chief told Harrison to leave, immediately contacted Sheriff Laney Norville about the accusations, and told him he wanted Harrison dismissed. So Harrison resigned in 1984 after 25 years of working as a police officer in 10 different agencies in Florida but he continued relocating to other agencies amidst the accusations because in the 80s, background checks and the internet were not available. Detective Taylor speculates that Harrison may have preyed on the children of undocumented immigrants, which were plentiful in the area, as they would have been more hesitant to report anything to law enforcement officials. Although Harrison died in 2008 of cancer before becoming a suspect in Laura's murder, that didn't stop Detective Taylor and his team. They established probable cause to determine that Harrison abducted, sexually assaulted, and murdered Laura. He later altered the crime scene by placing her body in a drainage ditch to destroy physical evidence. So in 2021, Evidence was tested using advancements and a lab recovered male DNA preserved from Laura's body. This DNA led to a search warrant request to exhume Harrison's body and create a DNA profile. They hoped to compare it to male DNA collected from Laura's rape kit, but it had degraded too much over the years. Laura's murder was declared solved in 2022. The St. Lucie County Sheriff's Office confirmed that former Deputy James Howard Harrison was the only probable suspect in the abduction, sexual assault, and murder of 11-year-old Laura Ann Weiser. 
Although her parents are deceased, Laura's brother Joe and sister Michelle said they are both thankful for some closure. Constantly grab my hand. I got always have a keychain with the Lord's Prayer on it, and she would never let it go. Serenity Ann McKinney was born to parents David Roller and Catherine McKinney and loved to sing, play, and learn new things. At the age of four, she was living in Pleasureville, Kentucky, with her mother and mother's boyfriend, Dakota Hill. It's unclear how long Catherine had been dating Dakota, but the family first met him around Christmas of 2020. Once Catherine started dating him, her behavior quickly began to change. Serenity spent some time with her extended family on Christmas Eve of 2020 and was showered with gifts. Months later, right before Father's Day of 2021, Serenity spoke with her grandfather, Brad Davis, on the phone, but she didn't mention where she was. Both of Serenity's grandmothers said Catherine always had an excuse when they asked if they could see or spend time with Serenity. Soon after, Catherine began slowly cutting off communication with family members and by September was entirely off the radar and no longer in contact with anyone, which was very unlike her. She allegedly bought a new phone with a new phone number and blocked everyone on social media, including her younger sister who she adored. Meanwhile, her aunt asked CPS to perform wellness checks six times within three days at the end of June 2021. Shortly after, Serenity's great-grandmother said she called the CPS hotline to report possible abuse. There were repeated requests for authorities to lay eyes on Serenity to verify if she was alive and okay. The mother refuses to let us see or even hear her on the phone, um, um, and, she's, uh, and we're all very concerned for her safety. Did you contact Child Protective Services? I haven't yet. I wanted to try to make contact to get a physical, I wanted a police officer to physically see the child to just have proof of life at this point. I understand, but there's all they can do is knock on the door. If they don't answer, there's nothing they can do. However, CPS wouldn't reveal if they ever laid eyes on her. When the police would perform a welfare check, no one would ever answer the door. With no help from CPS, they reached out to a family friend who worked in social services, but they couldn't find any confirmation that a report was ever made. A report was then made online on July 6, 2022. None of them had seen Little Serenity since Christmas of 2020. Serenity's grandfather had had enough and filed a missing persons report with the Shelby County Sheriff's Office on January 31, 2022. A week after the report was filed, Catherine and Dakota were arrested in Kansas and both were charged with custodial interference. They fled Kentucky to Kansas after learning of warrants for their arrest. Catherine immediately refused to cooperate with the missing persons investigation. According to the sheriff's office, she refused to answer any of their questions to help them find her daughter and pleaded the fifth. Despite the arrest, neither family members nor police gave up on finding Serenity. When Kiana Page Green discovered that Dakota was living in a car with Catherine, she offered them a place to stay from July 2021 to September 2021. They told her that Serenity was living with her grandmother. 
When they arrived at Kiana's home, she noted that Catherine had two black eyes and a swollen face, but denied that Dakota had assaulted her. She claimed that Dakota would follow them whenever she tried to talk to Catherine alone. Nicole Dearmond Cobble, who lived next door, said that Catherine and Dakota told her they had been homeless and Serenity was living with a family member. Kiana said that she and her boyfriend kicked them out in September 2021 after witnessing Dakota screaming and saying horrible things to Catherine. On February 18, 2022, 12 days after their arrest, Serenity's remains were found in West Point. They were located in a wooded area near the 1300 block of Skyview Road in West Point, Kentucky, near the Jefferson Bullet County line, about 50 miles from Shelbyville. It's unclear if they were told where they could find her or what led to the discovery of her remains. The judge set a $1 million bail and ordered that Catherine and Dakota not have any contact with each other. Catherine's representation revealed that she was seven months pregnant and argued for lower bail, but the Commonwealth and the judge denied the request. They were both declared a danger to others and were charged with murder and abuse of a corpse. At this time, her official cause of death has not been revealed. Serenity's father, David Roller, stated that it was like wanting to wake up from a nightmare that he knows he will not be able to wake up from. The family is furious at CPS and wants them held accountable. They feel that Serenity could have possibly been saved if CPS had taken action when they made their first reports. Lisa Holstead was born on April 18, 1964. At the age of 22, she was living in Racine, Wisconsin with her boyfriend, John Sott, and five-year-old son, Jeremy. On August 11, 1986, Jeremy was staying the night with family, and Lisa and John had spent the day at a family gathering and ended the night at Dave's bar. On the way home at about 2.30 a.m. in Green Bay, the couple got into a heated argument. When they pulled up to the intersection of West Mason Street and South Taylor Street, less than a mile from their home, Lisa opened the car door and took off. John would wait 12 hours for Lisa to return home, and when she didn't show up, he reported her missing at 2 p.m. on August 12th. About an hour later, construction workers spotted something strange in a swampy marsh. It appeared to be a hand sticking up out of the water. The marsh was located near Pete's Lake and Duck Creek in an area now known as the Ken Ewers Nature Area in Green Bay, Wisconsin. When they pulled their truck over to investigate, they discovered a woman's body lying half-naked by the water's edge. The body turned out to be Lisa's. She had been strangled using her blouse and sexually assaulted. Although DNA was collected and preserved from her body, it wouldn't be matched to the suspect for another 34 years. In 2020, investigators turned to a forensic genetic genealogist in hopes of identifying her killer. Using a DNA profile created from DNA found on her body, a genetic genealogist got to work. The genealogist was able to provide law enforcement with the name of the likely killer who resided in Racine. 
Investigators surveilled the man and were finally able to collect his DNA from beer cans he discarded in the dumpster outside his apartment and a cigarette butt he had tossed to the ground. A DNA analyst at the Wisconsin Crime Lab was able to extract a DNA profile from the cigarette butt and one of the beer cans. The DNA was a match to the suspected killer, 65-year-old Lou Archie Griffin of Racine. Griffin was arrested outside his home in Racine about 6 a.m. on October 28, 2020 and was charged with first-degree intentional homicide. At first, he denied even knowing Lisa, but once he was shown the DNA evidence, he said that he may have had sex with her but didn't kill her. Although he stated that he didn't remember having sex with her, he did admit to being high on cocaine and drinking alcohol that night. He said he went to a bar, then stopped at a McDonald's on his way home, which happened to be near Lisa's last known location. Police believe that Griffin saw Lisa that night, sexually assaulted her, killed her, then dumped her body in the swampy marsh. Griffin has a history of violence against women and sexual assault and had moved to Green Bay only a month before the murder after he was released on parole for second-degree child sexual assault. Since Griffin's arrest, her son Jeremy says he has been going through a roller coaster of emotions and wished his grandmother, who passed away a few years earlier, was still alive to witness the arrest. With Lisa's killer behind bars, she can now rest in peace. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.